you turn to a uh, one Peter and uh, chapter two. What we're going to cover tonight wasn't particularly or especially done with Christmas in mind at all. And yet, given that we are so close to Christmas, it, it, it is actually, you know, sort of very relevant in a way that you'll, you'll see, albeit perhaps not the way that people initially think of, you know, nice Christmas messages, you know, all very jolly in that. I mean, not that tonight isn't going to be jolly or anything, but... Um, 1 Peter chapter 2 and uh, going to read verse 4 and 5 and Peter says this as you come to him the living stone that is talking about Jesus obviously rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him and there is in some ways a kind of a mutual exclusiveness there that very often to be chosen by God is to be rejected of men and uh, as we follow the Lord in, in in this world we we sometimes find that don't we and he says you also like living stones just like Jesus because Jesus is alive we, we share his life you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, this is where Peter is saying that uh, as Christians, as we follow Jesus and in our fellowship together as the church, that we're actually being built up together, um, you know, to, to form like a spiritual house. The picture here is of the temple, and the temple was where God lives. And of course, ultimately, God lived in Jesus. You know, he said that he was the temple. And yet we are the temple as well, because Jesus lives in us. And it's a picture of like, you know, like you bring, you know, if you want to build something, you get all the bricks together. And it may look a bit higgledy-piggledy, but you, you separate all the bricks and put them all in their right place. And I mean, that's, that's a picture of the Lord working on us in regards to fellowship. You know, at times we don't fit together very well, but the Lord knocks off the rough edges and, and he fits us together to build us up into the churches that he wants us to be. And he was saying, given that you're being built up into a spiritual temple, a place where Jesus lives, obviously endemic to any temple is a priesthood. And he says that you are all priests. And of course, this is why it's so dark, isn't it? When churches have like, you know, vicars and ministers and clergy as opposed to laity. Because of course, in the Christian church, it's not in any way at all that the leadership are, are vicars and clergy and that the, you know, the rest of the people are sort of like the laity. Because here, Peter says you're all priests. And of course, the whole point being a priest stands between the people and God. That makes you a priest. And it makes you a priest because you can introduce anyone to Jesus. So that's why we're all priests, like the priesthood of all believers, as the Bible says. But uh, one of the main things that priests do, and therefore it's one of the things that you and I have to do as priests who are serving in the temple of the church, because that's what all of us are. We are corporately a temple of the living God, as every church is, and as the living stones that make that up, we are individually priests. And at the heart of what priests do is that they, as Peter says here, offer spiritual sacrifices 
acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. The fact that as priests, our calling is to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. Now, if you go to Ephesians chapter 5, it should come as no surprise whatsoever that as Christians, we are called to make spiritual sacrifices. Ephesians 5, and I'm going to read the first two verses. And Paul says this, Be imitators of God, therefore, which is what following Jesus is all about, being imitators of God, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Jesus, as our example, was himself a sacrifice. His whole life was that of becoming a sacrifice. And um, on, on Sunday I was saying, you know, like in regards, you know, to sort of like Christmas, that the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus' life, although it culminated, obviously, in the cross and everything that it stood for, the sacrifice began in him becoming a human being. You can't make a greater sacrifice than to lay us, you know, that if, if you are God, which obviously none of us are, but if you are God, you can't make a greater sacrifice than to become a man, a human being, laying aside all your inherent power as God. That in itself was the incredible sacrifice. And of course, at Christmas, it's very tempting, isn't it, to think in terms of Christmas as the gifts we're going to get. The most important thing about Christmas are the gifts that we give. And at the heart of Christmas is giving. And at the heart of giving is sacrifice. Because you're giving, and in giving, you in some way are going without. So Jesus' whole life was a sacrifice. It wasn't just that he sacrificed this, that, and the other. It wasn't just that, for instance, he forewent marriage and he forewent other things. It was the fact his whole life was itself a sacrifice. He was a sacrifice. And he became the sacrifice that dealt with our sins so that we could be in fellowship with God. Go to Romans chapter 3. And um, I'm going to start reading from verse 21. And this is Paul dealing with, you know, how it is that we can become right with God. You know, sort of like, the problem is, we're sinful, God is righteous. How do we be in fellowship with a righteous God when we're sinful? And uh, in verse 21, he's saying, But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Like he says the whole, you know, the Old Testament predicted the New Testament, as it were. So there's nothing odd about Jesus' death, you know, it was all there in the Old Testament, like the law and the prophets. And he says, this righteousness from God came through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, right? whether it's Jew or Gentile, it's the same for everyone. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
and are justified freely by his grace. Justified, justification, justified, never sinned. That's what the death of Jesus has done for us. It's given us a standing before God as if we aren't sinners. Justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The whole thing about redemption, the idea that we're in our natural state, we're in the slave market of sin. Well, how can a slave in the slave market ever be free? He would be redeemed, he would be bought and paid for by a free man who wanted him to become his slave. Now, we were in the slave market of sin, the only free man was Jesus, he bought us out of it, he redeemed us, and he's made us free, no longer under the bondage of being uh, merely sinners before God. Now we're his sons, we're justified. And Paul goes on to say, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. And how did this happen? Paul says, because God presented Jesus as a sacrifice. So, if we follow Jesus, if he is our example in every way, which of course he is, if the essence of his life was that he was a sacrifice, and he is, the Bible calls him, our great high priest, then as his followers, if we are priests under him, then it makes perfect sense that the heart of our lives is also to be sacrifice. And we're going to see what these spiritual sacrifices are. I mean, it's interesting, the very word itself, sacrifice, is related to the word sacred. The two are etymologically, which is the science of the meaning of words, right? It's a good word to know that. Get your etymology right and everything else will fall into place. Sacrifice and sacred are variations on the same word. And of course, sacred, holy. So the essence of our lives as God's holy people, i.e. a people set apart for him in order to live for him rather than to be living of the world, right? The essence of that holiness is sacrifice. So, therefore, the very essence of our lives as Christians is sacrifice. Because the very essence of the nature of God himself is also sacrifice. That is the sort of God that he is. And revealed supremely in Jesus, Jesus came as a sacrifice. And in many ways, um, as disciples, I suppose you could say that it is the bottom line. It's the bottom line which I suppose is going to be the demarcation between people who say, well, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, and indeed they may well be born again, they may be saved, technically saved, but basically, you know, God is almost just like an extra in their lives. Outside of that, they, they live, you know, not that different to how they would if they weren't a Christian. A demarcation between them, or carnal Christians, as the Bible would call them, and believers who really are disciples who really have laid down their lives in order to follow the Lord. And the demarcation line between those two, the test, is that life of sacrifice. So, therefore, having seen that, um, you know, that Peter says that we're a priesthood, and that the essence of priesthood is to offer spiritual sacrifices, 
what we want to, to, to do is to, to move on and say, well, okay, therefore, what are these spiritual sacrifices that should so characterise our lives as Christians? And if you turn to Hebrews, and of course it's no coincidence at all that it's the, the letter by an unknown writer, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but it's in this letter to the Hebrews that the, the fact of Jesus being the high priest of our faith is explored, all right? And so it's no coincidence that the answer to the question, what are these spiritual sacrifices, comes in the letter to the Hebrews, which in the early chapters has dealt with the whole thing about Jesus being our great high priest. And if you um, find chapter 13, the last chapter of Hebrews, and uh, I'm going to read verse 15 and 16. And the writer says, Through Jesus, therefore, and uh, if you just go down to verse 11, he says, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most ho holy place. So the, the context here is, is Jesus, is our great high priest. And he's saying, therefore, Jesus is a priest, therefore you are priests. So he says, therefore, through Jesus, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And can you see there that in Hebrews we have the three things that are these spiritual sacrifices that we, as God's priesthood, priests in his holy temple, as it were, the three sacrifices that we are to be making. The first one is praise. The second one is to do good, which would be good works. And the third one is share with others, giving. And they are the three spiritual sacrifices that are at the heart of our Christian lives. Praise, good works, and sharing or giving in all its forms. We'll look at each one. First of all, praise. That comes first. Why does praise come first? Why, why does this stand at the beginning? Why is this the primary spiritual sacrifice? Well, of course, the answer is because it puts God first. And that is forever the order. It is always the case that God comes first. When we did the Church Life series, when we looked at you know everything you wanted to know about being a church but were afraid to ask, we saw that in the, the kind of the... the the three aspects of what a church is, is for, we saw that number one was to give praise to God. To be those people on earth who are glorifying God and showing him forth for who he is and worshipping him and praising him. This is always our number one priority. We are called to love God first. And we love God before we love our neighbour. It always has to be God first, because if you change the order, it will all go wrong. If you try and put anyone else or anything else before God, however much you're trying to love that person or that thing, it will become as it were an idol to you, and you'll end up in wrong relationship to it. I mean, I think anyone who's married, who follows the Lord, has experienced what it is, 
that if you end up putting your partner before God, you actually end up loving them less, not more, because you start loving them in the wrong way. It must always be that God comes first. And therefore, praise and worship is at the head of our list here. And of course, it's because, above all else, God is worthy of our praise and God is worthy of our worship. I'm going to look at some Psalms now, so find uh, Psalm 33 first. And the first verse is this. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise him. It goes on to say, Praise the Lord with the harp, make music to him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to him a new song, play skillfully and shout for joy. And about all the ways you can praise the Lord. But he says, it is fitting for the upright to praise him. And of course it is fitting for the upright to praise him. He's God. Go to the next Psalm, 34. First verse, I will extol the Lord at all times. Extol, another word for praise. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Pretty straightforward from the word of God, isn't it? It's saying, be people of praise. Go, go to Psalm 51. This one is um, all the more more poignant because it's the psalm that David wrote after he came to repentance over the episode with Bathsheba. You'll remember he committed adultery with her. She became pregnant. In order to uh, kind of, you know, sort of, um, you know, hide his sin, he had to try and get her husband you know, who, who was at war, to come back and sleep with her, which didn't work because her husband was such a loyal soldier. Even though he was given special leave and they were fighting a war, he, he wouldn't sleep with her, he wouldn't go home. He, he sat in the street all night until he could get back to his unit. And so because of that, David couldn't find any way uh, to cover, um, you know, the sin that he'd committed. And so he had um, her husband killed. He had him murdered. So... This is after David's repentance for adultery followed by murder. You, you can't get lower. You, you can't get worse than that. And you'll remember God sent the prophet Nathan to him. And you know, Nathan said, you are the man. And, you know, and David was exposed. And he came to genuine, deep repentance. And this is the psalm that he wrote after that. And um, in, in verse 15, he says, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. And he wrote that as a broken man, absolutely as low as you can get. And that leads us on to this question. We've said, why praise first? And we've answered that. But the second question about it is, well, okay, so why then is praise classed as a sacrifice? Why does the Bible, on the one hand, it kind of paints the picture that praise and worship is what God's people ought to be wanting to do more than anything else, just living for it, and yet at the same time refers to it and classes it 
as a spiritual sacrifice. So why is praise and worship a sacrifice? And, well, it was that Psalm 51 we just saw in King David that's the key to it. And it's because there are many times when praise and worship doesn't come easily. And because it doesn't come easily, we therefore have to make it as a sacrifice. Often it's just the fact that you don't feel like it. Now, obviously, there are times when maybe in praise and worship, you're really sensing the Holy Spirit moving, and, and it's great, it's, it's fantastic. You know, it beats watching a good film, it, you know, it, it, it beats most of anything you can name. And we find that we're actually, it's, it's very pleasant doing it. So we're not only doing it because it's right, but we're loving it, it's great. And that's marvellous when that happens, that, that, that is absolute genuine praise. But the point is, there are many times as well when any such feelings just aren't there. Often, sometimes the opposite sorts of feelings. If there are difficulties we're going through, or you know, sort of like if, if, if we're, you know, as we've already, you know, sort of prayed about tonight, very aware of our sinfulness and very aware of things that you know that God's doing in our lives, and and often there there are many occasions when 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 praise just doesn't come easily. The, the, the feelings, if you like, aren't there. But the point is this. Even though our feelings change pertaining to worship and praise, God's worthiness doesn't change because he doesn't change. And so the point is God is worthy of our worship come what may. Whether we feel like it or not, whether it seems convenient or not. And so therefore there are many times when our approach to praise and worship is a choice that we simply make sacrificially because it's right and because we're disciples. Or, as Psalm 33 said, that it is fitting for the upright to give praise. Doing it because it's right. Doing it because God is worthy of our praise and worship. He made us where his creatures. Our place is in worship to God. So there are many times when it is a sacrifice. We make an act of the will and we do it, regardless of what we feel like, because it is right that we do. Go to, to Psalm 106. The essence of being created in the image of God is free will choice. And the essence of sacrifice is making the right free will choices. But we can make them. It's whether or not we decide to. So feel really great, it's a sunbeam, I feel really great, do not feel like worship. Well, one way or the other, we'll make a choice, won't we? We will either make a free will choice to worship and be obedient or we will make a free will choice to not worship because we don't feel like it. It always boils down to a free will choice, and that is the essence of sacrifice. Psalm 106, just get verse 12 to, to start with. Now this is a psalm looking back 
on the history of Israel's travels from the time they came out of Egypt and were set free from Egypt, slavery in Egypt, got over the Red Sea and all, all their wanderings in the wilderness on the way to the Promised Land. And this psalm is looking back over the saga of that 40-year period in Israel's history. Now look at verse 12, this comment. Then they believed his promises and sang his praise. Now that's one approach. Now go over to verse 24. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his promise. They grumbled in their tents and did not obey the Lord. Now then, here we have two different, indeed opposite approaches to worship. All right? And one is to do it and sing his praise. The other is to not do it, despise the pleasant land, not believe his promise, and to grumble in your tent. And we know on a Sunday, or indeed on a Tuesday, or day to day, because worship is not just when we come together corporately as a church, but we know whether, I mean, obviously, yeah, when, 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 when the feelings are there and you're feeling great, and you're feeling worshipful, and you're sensing that joyous presence of God, well then praise comes easily. Of course it does, and it's great that it does. But in the times when it doesn't, then day by day we know whether we are singing his praise out of obedience, or whether we're grumbling in our tents. And if we're grumbling in our tents, it says, and did not obey the Lord. Now then, these two verses refer to the same group of people, the Israelites at that particular time in their history. What changed? At certain times they sang his praise. At other times they grumbled in their tents. What changed? I'll tell you. They did. Their choice changed. That was all. Their circumstances didn't change. They still had the same history. God has set them free from Egypt. They still had the same future. They were on their way to Canaan. They still had the same presence. God was with them in the wilderness. But sometimes they sang his praise and sometimes they just grumbled in their tents and were disobedient. And the only thing that changed was them. Their choices changed. Now, we've got to make sure, because we are called to make a sacrifice of praise, that we do that, that we make the sacrifice of praise. And it's going to require two things. Well, when you're feeling great, it's not going to require anything. Just do what comes naturally, and that's brilliant. I mean, I, I wish that was the case more often. But I'm talking about the times when it's not like that, okay? And it's going to take two things to make the sacrifice of praise. The first thing is to ignore your feelings. That's the first thing it's going to take. And the second thing it's going to take is a bit of effort. Because if you read through the Bible about praise, you get things like standing up, clapping, singing out loud, dancing, and a hundred other things. So what's it going to take for the sacrifice of praise on those times when it is a sacrifice? Well, as I say, first of all, it's going to take ignore your feelings, step one. Step two, it's going to take stand up, clap, sing, dance. Do it doesn't matter if you don't feel like it. There's a real sense in which if you don't feel like it, well actually all the better. We're talking sacrifice here. 
So if something's a sacrifice, the harder it is, the better quality of sacrifice it is. Now here's a way to approach worship in a positive way when you don't feel like it. And it's realising if you come along to worship and you're just bubbling over with the Holy Spirit, and that's fantastic, that's great, that worship, the Lord's going to love it. But if you're approaching worship and you haven't got a feeling in the world, or you have, but they're all the wrong ones, and the last thing you feel like doing is worshipping, then just stop and take stock of the fact that God is therefore giving you an opportunity to worship so sacrificially that it's going to bless him even more than if you felt like doing it. Because that is the essence of sacrifice. So there's a sense in which the more we don't feel like it on any one occasion, the better sacrifice it's going to be as to the Lord. And the Lord loves it. So therefore, stand up. Therefore, sing out. Therefore, dance. Don't sit there, no effort. Sort of, grumble, grumble basically. No! We've got to make the sacrifice of praise and we've got to do it. And while we're on this, blow the inhibitions as well. If I stand up, I'll be embarrassed. Be embarrassed! This is, we're talking sacrifice here. A bit like saying, oh yeah, but if I, you know, if I, if, you know, if I give money away, I've left to spend on myself. Well, yeah, that's the whole point. <laughs> that is the essence of sacrifice. And it's the same with, you know, like, you know, sort of, oh no, if I stand up and if I clap and if I, you know, sort of sway slightly from side to side in a dancing-like motion, all people think I'm silly. Let them think you're silly. What does it matter? It's sacrifice. All this is being done unto the Lord. And if we think, oh, but I'll feel really stupid, well, let that be a sacrifice too. Feel stupid then. Doesn't matter. It's a sacrifice of praise. So can you see at the heart of it? Go, go back to, in, in fact, to 1, one Peter. At the heart of it, all the time, it's sacrifice. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, and this is later on in the paragraph we were reading earlier. He's already talked about spiritual sacrifices, the priesthood, and he says, look, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And he says, above all else, this is what you are there for. This is the purpose of our lives, to declare the praises of him, of our Father in heaven, of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're there for. It's a sacrifice. Right, okay, well number two we saw in Hebrews was um, doing good, good works. Our second spiritual sacrifice that we're to be making is the sacrifice of doing good works. Go to Ephesians again. Chapter 2. And um, read from verse 8. And Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So he's saying you're saved purely because of what Jesus did, not because of what you've done. And then he goes on to say, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do 
good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. The moment you became a Christian, all right, God set up throughout the rest of your life on earth rows and loads and loads of good works for you to do because you're a Christian. And then he says, but I want you to do them. Because we don't have to do good works. It's purely free will. Free will. But if we're prepared to make the sacrifice, we will. And it's interesting. Here, where Paul says, you are God's workmanship, that word workmanship in the Greek is poema. And it's a Greek word that means a work of art. And it's also the word that we get poem from. And of course, a poem is the poet's expression of himself. And so what Paul is saying here, look, you've been saved. Jesus is living in you now. He wants to express himself through you. He wants you to be his poem, his painting, his work of art, his sculpture, whatever it is. As the artist, he wants to express something of himself through you. And therefore, it shall come as no surprise to find out that um, God wants to express his goodness through us. And how can God express his goodness through us? It's by us doing good works. Go over to Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Paul says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, that good work that God's begun in us is getting us to heaven, and he is going to get us there. But can you see, he who began a good work, the most natural thing for God to do is good works. Therefore, if we are to be an expression of what he is like because he lives in us, then we would expect to be doing good works as well. If you go to um, Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and uh, verse 14. And Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Elsewhere, he said, I am the light of the world. Well, of course, we are the light of the world because the light of the world is in us, shining out of us. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. So he would say, right, well, how can we let the light of Jesus shine out of us? And he says, in the same way let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So what Jesus is saying, let the world see the good works you do. And when they see the good works you do, they'll give praise to you? No, to God. Because it will be obvious that it's the Lord working in and through us. It's not us being, it's not us, you know, sort of producing good works from our own hearts. It's what God is doing through us. So therefore, let men see your good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. 
So therefore, God is good. If God is good, therefore, we're going to be doing good works. Go back to Psalms. And uh, go back to Psalm 34. Verse 8. And the psalmist said, Taste and see that the Lord is good. He says, look, taste it. You know, look, the Lord is good. It's the fundamental nature of God. Go to Psalm 100. In verse 5 it says, For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. That was Psalm 100, verse 8. The five, 5, verse 5. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. Now go to Psalm 145. And in verse 9, and it says, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all that he has made. And you'll remember as well that Jesus in his teaching, he said, look, the Lord causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. It's not just believers that he blesses. He provides for all. And in the same way, the rain, it's not, you know, sort of just for, you know, just for the righteous. It's for the unjust as well. As, as they say, that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, but, but less on the unjust fella. But that's just because the unjust one has just nicked the just one's umbrella, as, as they say. But you see, the fundamental nature of the Lord is that he is good. It's his goodness. So therefore, if God is good, and if we're following him, if Jesus is our example, and if Jesus is living through us, then it goes to show that we must be good as well. Go to 2 Corinthians. Two Corinthians and find chapter nine. And of course we know that of ourselves we are not good. This is because of the life that God has given us. It's not our life, it's his life in us. He's changed us. We wouldn't have been like this if it wasn't for his spirit working through us, if it wasn't for Jesus living in us. It's because of what he's doing through us. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. And he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you. Uh, the context here is financial giving. We'll be back to this shortly. But he says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And that's what he wants for us, to abound in every good work. Go to Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, read from verse 9. He says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, 
let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 and 17. And this is the uh, very well-known statement of Paul why, why the Bible is so important. He says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that's what the Bible's for. The Bible is there so that we can grow in truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, the truth shall make you free. The more we understand of what God has done for us through Jesus, the more we understand of the changes he's made in us, the more we understand of how we're able to be now. And what's, what's the point of it all? It's so we can do good work. But it's a sacrifice, isn't it? I mean, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it doesn't feel like a sacrifice at all. But other times it is a sacrifice. This is being always ready to help. This is when putting other people's needs before your own. This is often when what you're giving isn't money, it's time. I mean, one of the reasons that, you know, we sort of like, you know, have, have, you know, sort of like often, you know, work parties going and doing various practical jobs for people is, is, is because that, you know, that, that's what discipleship boils down to, helping people, being prepared to give of your time and, you know, and of, often doing menial jobs as well. But, but this is the, the whole, it's what God is like. He came to serve. Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And of course, the essence of following Jesus, being a disciple, is being a servant. What is a servant there for? It's to, to, to do the works that his master tells him to do. Now, we're here to do the works that our master tells us to do, Jesus. And what are the works he tells us to do? He says, good work. He said, do good works to help other people. But it's a sacrifice and we're back to a choice and it is our choice we can do any time what we know is right for us to do someone who needs help or whatever or we can say no i'm tired no i need time for myself no i and we'll always have loads and loads of good reasons for not doing any particular good work but it's sacrifice it's a spiritual sacrifice it's something that we decide to do in exactly the same way that, that, you know, when it comes to worshipping God, we decide, will we do it or not do it? What's going to matter? God's glory or our feelings? What comes first? God's glory comes first. If I put my feelings first, I'm serving me, not him. And in exactly the same way with good works, that as we have opportunity, as the Lord lays before us opportunities, to help people in practical ways, however inconvenient it might be for us, well, there's the call to make a spiritual sacrifice as a priest. And at the end of the day, if we're not making spiritual sacrifices, a priest who's not doing sacrifices isn't really doing his job as a priest. As I said earlier, the idea of having priests leading the church, I mean, he's daft, I mean, that's, that's crazy. 
But in those sort of like, you know, sort of churches that do have priests, all right, well, I would imagine that if a bishop caught a vicar who hasn't done communion for the last few weeks, he'd be thinking, well, what are you doing then? It's your job. You're there to make the spiritual sacrifice of communion for the people. It's your job. If you're not doing it, you're not really. You might call yourself a priest, but you're not acting like one. So for us, in the genuine priesthood, if we're not worshipping God, if we're not doing good works, well then we're priests in name only. We're not actually doing what priests are supposed to do. And then the, the final one, the third one, as we saw, was sharing, which is the whole area of giving. In some ways you can say that the doing good, the good works, is giving your time. Giving your time. Well, when it comes to sharing with others, when push comes to shove, what we're talking about now is giving our money. That whole area of giving in the Bible. And again, it's a sacrifice. And uh, remember the essence of, of Jesus' teaching about money. He, he called it the great god Mammon in so many words, didn't he? The word Mammon is simply an Aramaic word for riches. But when Jesus used it on, on the two occasions that he did, once in, Matthew, uh, in um, Matthew and once in Luke, on the two occasions that he spoke about it in terms of being mammon, he personified it as a rival master to himself. And hence he was saying, look, you, you cannot serve two masters. You'll love the one and hate the other. So you cannot serve God and mammon. And in Jesus' teaching, that's what he did. He kind of took money and he personified it as potentially a rival idol, almost like idolatry. And, um, you know, and he said that this can be a rival master to me. And the only way really to get money under control as a Christian is to be very, very willing to give it away. Now, let's remember particularly with money, but this is the same with praise and it's the same with good works. It's the same with all sacrifices. They're all entirely voluntary. So as a Christian, you don't have to worship God if you don't want to. I've always believed that God is of the opinion that if you don't want to, don't. I, I, I believe God can live without my worship. Okay. Um, God, God can live without my money, that's for sure. I mean, he, 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 he owns... The earth is the laws and the fullness thereof. And, and I've got no doubt at all that God looks down and he says, no, if you want to keep money for yourself, keep it, mate. I don't want it. And it's the same with good works. Oh, no, no, if, if you don't, that's fine. You stay at home, you watch that video, whatever it is, I'll find someone else to do that. Ultimately, it's no skin off God's nose in regards to these things. They are entirely voluntary. But here's the rub. We don't have to do these things. But if we're not doing these things, let us not claim to be following the Lord. So the Bible gives us the freedom. Once we've come to Jesus, once we've received him as our saviour, we're Christians, we are saved. Nothing can change that. We're going to heaven. We got that free gift. We didn't get it by being good. You can't lose it by being bad. So that issue is settled. But once that issue is settled, the Bible says, at the end of the day, you can live how you like now because you've still got free will. The Bible gives us that freedom. 
but it doesn't give us the freedom to be hypocrites. So it says, if you're not living in such and such a way, then don't claim that you're following the Lord, because you're not. You've accepted him as your saviour, but don't you dare say that Jesus is your Lord. And of course, one of the great problems in the kingdom of God today is that there are so many believers that Jesus is their saviour, but he's not their Lord. Because they've stopped short of that. They've got salvation. Now it's a bit of the order, I'm, I'm all right now, Jack. You know, the world and I'm going to heaven as well. And often, you know, sort of like this, this shows itself in regards to money. It is God or money at the end of the day. And uh, if, if, if we're called to make spiritual sacrifices, then the sacrifice of sacrificial giving is one of the tests that we have to, to go through. Go to uh, 1 Timothy, just read um, various things here. 1, 1 Timothy, chapter 6, and I'm going to read from verse 6. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now that's the key to it. You see, the world finds contentment in money because of what the money can do for you. That's a mistake. Our contentment is in Jesus and whatever situation he's put us in. And he says, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. And of course, this immediately takes us back to Robert Lee. Well, he always used to say about the whole thing about money, he said, life is a big game of monopoly. And at the end of the game, you may have nothing, you may have been wiped out, but on the other hand, you might have hotels on Mayfair Park Lane, Trafalgar Square, Leicester Square, that whole lot. But he says, it doesn't matter how many hotels you've got, it doesn't matter how much money you've got, when the game ends, it all goes back in the box. And when we die, and there's one thing that we can be absolutely assured of every human <coughs> being, we're all going to die. Whatever we've got goes back in the box. It's irrelevant. Whether we're millionaires or paupers, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. You might have all the money in the world in a bank account. When you turn your toes up, that money is not going with you. It stays in the bank account. You don't stay on earth. And that puts it into perspective, doesn't it? And he says, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Of course we will, no problem. And he says, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. When the Bible says this thing about, you know, money is the root of all, you know, the love of money is the root of all evil, the point is that when people love money, there's nothing you won't do to get it. That, that's the point. There's no evil you won't, you know, in order to get it. That, that's the point. If you love money, there's all manner of sins that you'll be prepared to commit in order to get it. Now notice, the Bible is not saying that it's wrong to prosper or even to be rich. But the Bible does say it's wrong if you want to be rich. There's a big difference. And he says, some people eager for money have wandered from the faith 
and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now there he's talking about Christians because he says they've wandered from the faith. Money, the love of money can rob someone of their discipleship. And whereas it can't rob them of salvation, you can't lose your salvation, thank you Lord. But the point is, money can rob you of your discipleship, because it eats away. If you love money, it eats away like a gangrene. Um, let's go over to verse 17. And he says, Command those who are rich in this present world. Now, these are Paul's instructions to Timothy, who's an elder in a church. So it's right, this is right and proper, that leaders of churches make sure that everyone is aware of this. And he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. Now notice, Paul isn't saying, tell them that they've got to, that, that, that they've got to give all their money away and stop being rich. He's not saying that. But he's telling them firstly, not to be arrogant. Because with money comes power, and with power comes pride. You see, if person A has got more money than person B, then if they're sinfully inclined, there's a hundred ways they can lord it over person B. Because with money comes arrogance. And Paul says, no, not so in the disciple. And he says, tell them not to put their, help, their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. Because money, because you can do so much with money, it's tempting to think that your power and ability lies with your money. It doesn't. Our power and ability has got to lie in our relationship with God, knowing that we're powerless and unable. But it's Him, not us. And He says, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So Paul's not saying, you know, sort of like, if you've got money, enjoy it. He's not saying don't enjoy it. But look what he does say. He says, command them. This is strong language. He's talking about people who've got, lot, you know, who are rich. He says, command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds. There's the good works, all right? And to be generous and willing to share. And what Paul is saying here, he's saying, look, the more money you've got, the more you should be giving away. With increased prosperity should come increased giving. And it's worth noting, isn't it, that if in one circumstance in life, if you find that your income is going up, but your giving isn't, then your giving is going down. And this is something that is very subtle, and it's very deceptive, and Satan can get in there. It's easy to settle a level of giving that is right for the time when you settle it, right? Now, sometimes one circumstances can go down. You might find that your, your income, for whatever reason, goes down. I don't mean because you've bought a posher house, either, and up your mortgage. I'm not talking about that. But, you know, maybe someone loses their job and they end up with a, you know, maybe unemployed or maybe a job that pays less. There can be times when our income goes down. Well, okay, then it's fitting for our giving to go down. So it's no use giving so much that you can't actually pay your bills and you're getting in debt, all right? So, you know, so there's that way round. Sometimes income can stay virtually the same, but sometimes income can increase, and yet giving stays the same as it was before it increased. 
Now, then your giving is going down. Because if God is blessing me financially and I'm getting you know, far, far more this year than I did last year, for instance, well, if my giving hasn't gone up to far more, then I can't look back and think, oh, well, I gave the same as I did last year. If my income goes up and my giving doesn't go up in proportion, then in actual fact, my giving has gone down. Because giving is meaningless except as a proportion of my disposable income. And isn't it crazy? Well, not crazy, but how, how wrong to be in a position, and so many Christians, particularly in the Western world, are in the position that I'm talking about now. Their income goes up and up and up, but their giving doesn't. Precisely as they're getting richer, their giving is going down. And here, this is why Paul says, and his words are strong, he says, command. I mean, this is pretty imperative. And the reason that Paul is being so imperative here is because of the dangers inherent in prosperity. It's good if God prospers us. That's not a problem. It is not wrong to be rich, to be prospered. It's wrong to want to be rich. That's wrong. Because our contentment is in the Lord and whatever situation he's put us in. But it's not saying it's wrong to be prospered. But it's saying that the more we're prospered, then the more we ought to be doing by way of good works and the more we ought to be doing by way of giving. If you go over to um, James, James chapter 2. and find verse 15. And he says, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. So here's someone in the church, like they're destitute, right? They're going hungry. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and be well fed. I'll bless you. You know, hope you have a better day tomorrow, mate, right? But does nothing about his physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith, by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. And that is directly talking about money. If faith doesn't issue in giving financially, it's dead faith. It's not saying you're not saved, but it's saying that whereas your faith, as it were, was living when you came to Jesus, it's dead now. (laughs) It hasn't stayed alive, and you need to bring it back to life, as it were. Go to 1 John. These are verses we're very familiar with here. They're so important. This whole thing is so important. 1 John 3, verse 16. It's funny, isn't it? For lots of people, the, the best known verse in the Bible is John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believed on him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And it's one of the best known verses in the Bible. And it's also one of the most important verses in the Bible at all, as well, because it's such a statement of what Jesus has done. And, uh, you know, sort of like John 3.16. But notice that we've looked at two other chapter 3, verse 16s tonight. Very important ones as well. There's something about 3.16. Go through the Bible sometime. Look at all the chapters 3, verse 16s. Fascinating. Anyway, that's a bit of side. Um, 1 John 3, verse 16, he says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Sacrifice. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Sacrifice. Definition. If anyone has material possessions 
and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? You see, you don't have to give, you don't have to worship, you don't have to do good. You can just be saved knowing you're going to heaven and live selfishly in the meantime. You can do that, but what you can't do is claim to be following the Lord in the meantime. What you can't do then is claim that the love of God is in you. Because if the love of God is in you, it's got to show itself. He says, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. And that's sacrifice. That is sacrifice. Go back to Philippians. It's the bottom line, isn't it? Philippians chapter 4. Verse 18. Now in Philippians, Paul is writing to a church who have sent him a financial gift to help support him in the work that he's doing. And, you know, the real reason for the letter to the Philippians is to thank them for that gift. And he says in verse 18, he says, I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying, the money that they had given to him to support him in the ministry that he had. It's not the only reason that money is given, but obviously supporting those who work for the church full-time is one of the reasons for giving. Of course it is. And Paul is saying, that money that you've gone without in order to support him, he says that, as far as God is concerned, is a sacrifice that is pleasing to him. And it's interesting, then he goes on, and this is one of the promises that again is so well known in the Bible, and it's, it's, it's so frequent to come across this verse in Bible teaching, all right? And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Indeed, the so-called prosperity teachers, largely coming from America, but it's called on sadly over here, quite, you know, this idea that if God, you know, if, if, if you're really close to God, then God will make you rich. You know, this, this idea of prosperity, that if you're in God's will, he wants to, by definition, make you rich. This is one of the verses, they, you know, my God will provide all your needs. And it's so easy, isn't it, when Christians are having a bit of a bad time, maybe there's bills coming in they can't afford to pay. It might be because too many takeaways, or you know, it might just be irresponsibility in handling money. But it's so easy to, oh, well, God is going to provide all my needs and I'm just trusting the Lord, blah, blah, blah. And forget that the context of this promise, when Paul assures them that God will provide all their needs, He's done so precisely because they have given so generously to him. And this promise about God providing everything we need, that is a promise that has a condition, and the condition is sacrificial giving. You'll never be able to outgive God. That's, that's true. You know, the more you shovel out your giving out the back door, you'll find that God's provision pours in the front door. And so you shovel it back out the back door again. And God will shovel it in the front door. Absolutely. This isn't so we're rolling with money and rich. This is so we've got more and more to give. And so the context of that, God providing, is 
in the context of Paul talking about a sacrificial gift that they had sent to him. Well, I suppose if we say, okay, right, giving, so why a sacrifice? Why does the Bible define giving as a, a sacrifice? Well, I mean, obviously, silly question. But let's, let's face it head on. Why is giving a sacrifice? If you're a Christian, well, it's because you ain't got so much to spend on yourself. And that's a sacrifice. And that is the whole point of a sacrifice. It's benefiting someone else at a cost to yourself. That is what sacrifice is. And of course, the point is, throughout the Bible, the shove in regards to giving is that it's sacrificial giving. Because if you ask yourself the question, unless our giving is actually sacrificial, what's the point? It's not really giving worthy of the word, is it? And let me define sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving in the Bible is not defined by giving away every spare penny you've got and regardless of what your income is, living like a pauper. That is not what the Bible defines sacrificial giving as. Now, there are some people with a calling to do that. You'll remember that Jesus once addressed the rich young ruler and he said to him, for you to follow me, you must give away everything you've got. That is my calling on your life. And the rich young ruler walked away from it. There are people in, you know, in, in the Bible, it talks about a spiritual gift, the gift of giving. And there are people who do live a life where they pare their lifestyle down so that they're not spending a spare penny on what anything they want. It's only on what they need and they give the rest away. That is a gift and a ministry that some people do have. And if you're called to it, that's great. So that is a possibility. All right, Some people are called to that. But the general way that the Bible defines sacrificial giving is simply giving to the extent that you are living a lower lifestyle or that you're living at a lower standard of living than you would be if you weren't giving. So by sacrificial giving, what we're saying is we've all got our income, whatever it is, we all know what our income is and offset that against our outgoings and blah, blah, blah. That is our standard of living. Now, whatever that is, whether we're in the higher reaches financially and God is really blessing us, high earners, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. That is brilliant that, that some of God's people are high earners. That, that's great. Nothing wrong with that at all. Or whether we're middling or whether we're down at the bottom, you know, sort of like, you know, hardly, you know, not, not much money left over at the end of the week at all. The point is that sacrificial giving means that we'll actually be living at a lower standard of living than if we weren't giving. And that's what it means. I mean, for one person, it might mean, for instance, that, um, you know, that they could, for instance, if they wanted to go to Florida on holiday, but they go to Butlins. That, that you know, I mean, I'm just hooking examples out of the air. For someone else, it might be that they buy a Merc, not a Mercedes, a, a Merc, not a Ferrari. Because remember, that even Christians who are very rich take someone like Cliff Richard. And Cliff Richard is a disciple of Jesus. There's no doubt. He is a wonderful example of a disciple of Jesus. Now, obviously, he's fabulously wealthy. But 
of course he gives sacrificially. Now, obviously, it's difficult for us to understand that sacrificial giving for some people might be, you know, sort of, I won't buy that, that Rolls Royce next year, or whatever. But the point is, at whatever level it is, it might be having cut down, or, you know, no, I'm, I'm going to have less takeaways. Because I'm, I'm, I'm having a couple of takeaways a week. Right, it means cutting one of them, I give that away. You see, whatever level it is, and it's for each one of us to find our level, the point is your giving means that you could have a higher standard of living, but you refuse that yourself, you sacrifice it because you're giving it. And this is why, incidentally, it's crazy when Christians say that giving in the church is all tied up with tithing, you know, like the tenth. Tithing was Israel's tax system in the Old Testament. And there wasn't one tithe, there were two and a half. So their, their taxes worked out about 27%, something like that. Tithing was Israel's tax system. In the New Testament, giving is strictly free will offering. And it would be ridiculous to say that Christian giving is tithing, because for some people, to give a tenth of their income might be more than they can reasonably manage. If they're low paid, and if they've got wife, kids, you know, rent to pay, it could be that for some people, a tenth would be too much. That they literally couldn't do that and make ends meet at the end of the week. But for other people, to give a tenth would be tight. You know, I mean, people on 30 grand giving £3,000 away every year. That's peanuts on that sort of money. This is why it's so ridiculous when, when people say tithing is a tenth. It's not. There's no limit on it. It's, it's what is sacrificial at whatever level you are in. Go to Luke 21. And there are two things here to illustrate what I've just said. Um, illustrate something else as well. Luke 21, very famous story from the, the life of Jesus. Luke 21, verse 1. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, what, what lies at the back of that story is two things. Firstly, Jesus is not very impressed with people, kind of, you know, and the, 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 the push behind this is people giving out of their wealth, but not giving very generously. You know, like chucking a tenner in here and there. I mean, it's nothing, is it? But also, because of what this widow, who had no money, I mean, these two coins were all she had, show us as well that certainly the, the, the more prosperous you are, the more you ought to give as a proportion of your income, of course. But also it tells us, the widow's might, this story tells us, that we're never too poor to give either. And, and that, that's amazing. For some people, because of their finances, maybe low pay, lots of outgoings, wife, children, rent to pay, whatever, 
I'm not talking about people who mortgaged up to the eyeballs and at the end of the week they ain't got two brass farthings to rub together because they spent it all on their posh house. I'm not talking about that sort of no money left over at the end of the week. I, I've, I've known some incredibly prosperous people who are always broke. Technically, they've never got any money in the bank. But it's just because they're spending it all the time. You know, I mean, they're not actually... If they stop spending, they, they'd soon have, have loads of money in the bank. All right. But what I'm talking about now of people, Christians, who find themselves in the situation that what they've got to give may as a sum seem insignificant to them. It's sacrificial to them, but in the scheme of things, it, well, is you know, crumbs, it seems so little. Well, Jesus looked at this widow putting in her two little coins, and he was gobsmacked. He was gobsmacked. Because it's not the amount, it's the fact that we're giving sacrificially. That's what really matters. And so the thing about sacrificial giving, I mean, you know, we've, we've seen in regards to worship. I mean, sometimes, you know, sort of like, you need to worship till it hurts. I have to sometimes. Um, in regards to doing good deeds, sometimes you've got to do it till it hurts. And in regards to money, sacrificial giving is giving until it hurts. But let me tell you that in actual fact, if you do give until it hurts, you'll find that you're actually giving until it gives you so much joy and happiness that you couldn't have bought that joy with the money you've given. Um, and it, it will certainly give you far more joy than, than, than had you got whatever it is you're going without in order to give it. I mean, it's wonderful to know that there are maybe things you could have and want, and that they, they might be completely legitimate things, nothing wrong with them of, of, of themselves. You could have them, you'd really like them, but you don't because of your giving. That is such a joy. And to have those things at the expense of giving would be utter misery. And it is interesting that in the Bible, that particularly the giving of money is tied up with great joy. And maybe because, and especially in the Western world at the end of the 20th century, financial giving is often like the hardest, as it were. And of course, where the greatest sacrifices, that is where there'll be the greatest joy. And so in these things, we are a priesthood. As a church, we're the temple of God. As individuals, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. As individuals, we're the temple of God. He lives in us. But in another way, as the corporate church, and we're just one church, there are millions of others out there. But as a Christian church, we're a temple of God, living stones, individuals in the church, built together into a house for God to live in. God lives in this church, the same as he lives in every Christian church. He's here amongst us. And because of that, we are a priesthood. And as priests, we make spiritual sacrifices. And we've seen praise, doing good works, and giving money. This is, these are the sacrifices that we're called to. But of course, what it all really boils down to, and where we're going to end up now with ourselves, is where we started with Jesus. And it wasn't so much that Jesus sacrificed anything. Jesus was himself a sacrifice. And if you go to Romans 12, 
Romans chapter 12 and the first verse, we're going to find that this is exactly the same for us. But at the heart of this isn't the sacrifices we make. At the heart of it is that we ourselves become a sacrifice. In the same way that the life of self-denial for the Christian is not a question of denying yourself things, it's a question of denying yourself and whatever that means at any one moment. So therefore, Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Paul saying, you put yourself on the altar. With the sacrifices in the temple, you brought the bull or the goat or the lamb in and you slit its throat and its body was on the altar. All right. And what Paul is saying, you must be living sacrifices because we're on the altar, totally given to God, but we're still alive. There's one sense in which we're dead. We're to be dead to ourselves. And that is what being the living sacrifice is actually about. And that is the heart of our spiritual worship as priests and as God's people. We sacrifice in regards to praise, in regards to good deeds and in regards to our money. We do that because we are ourselves sacrificed to the Lord. And if I am sacrificed to the Lord, then everything about me and everything I have and everything I am is sacrificed with me. The same way when you, you know, get married. You know, you, you give yourself to someone and it's all that I am and all that I have. If all that you are is given, then everything you have is automatically given anyway. And that's the point. If we are ourselves spiritual sacrifices and we can test ourselves from the three examples that we've given, how it's worked out in practice. If we are ourselves spiritual sacrifices, living sacrifices, then these things will just be there. They'll take care of ourselves. And he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Andy prayed earlier, didn't he, about this very thing. Well, how do we get transformed? By the renewing of our minds. Well, this is it. Be a living sacrifice. And he says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. Often all the problems we have with God's will is because we are not ourselves truly laid on the altar. And, you know, what a, a, a perk here to be a living sacrifice and to be able to test and approve what God's will is. I mean, it's hard. Sacrifice is hard. But on the other hand, it's at the place of sacrifice where we find the joy of the Lord. And that is what we're called to. And if we, the world would, would look on and say, oh, what, that's trouble with Christianity. It's all self-denial, isn't it? It's, it's the best life. Because it ends up not, not with concentrating on what you're going without. It's concentrating on the fact, yes, but Jesus is with you. 